Shalom and welcome. It's midnight from Jerusalem, our weekly virtual worship service. We're going to begin with a unique call to worship this evening from the book of Leviticus in chapter 23. So I invite you to take out your Bibles and look there with me to the book of Leviticus and chapter 23. Now, if you're a good student of the Bible, you will remember that chapter 23 speaks of the festivals of the Lord, what he calls his appointed days. And I just want to read a longer portion of scripture for this call to worship. Not going to make too many comments about it, but I want you to listen carefully. Hopefully you have a copy of your Bible with you and that you follow along. And I'm going to be translating this very literally from the Hebrew text. And it might be of interest to you in order that you see how your Bible renders it. We're going to do our very best to make sure that what is said in Hebrew, that same word order, the literalness of the words that are used, all of that is conveyed in the translation that I'm going to render at this time. So again, the book of Leviticus chapter 23 and I'm going to begin reading also in verse 23, where it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Now that term children is b'nai, which is the sons of Israel. But most understand that the masculine is used oftentimes to be inclusive, to refer to both male and female. Once more, We'll go back to verse 24. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, there shall be for you, and the next word is Shabbaton. Most of you know the word Shabbat, the Sabbath, but this is the term Shabbaton that comes from the word Shabbat, but it simply means a day of rest. And it speaks of it, in a significant manner, not just a day of rest, but a Shabbaton implies that we're going to keep, do, observe, and remember the things that God has instructed us for a Shabbat, whether that Shabbat is a seventh day Sabbath or whether it's a holiday Sabbath. And then we have a unique phrase. Now, most of you know that the term Rosh Hashanah the new year is a, a term that was made up by the sages of Israel. It's not a biblical term. And therefore, when we look in the scripture, many people will speak about the day of trumpet. Many call it the feast of trumpets in the plural. But the biblical term, in another portion of scripture, it has that phrase, Yom Teruah. Teruah is not trumpet but it's the sounding of the shofar, the ram's horn. And here we have the term zikaron truah. Now, we observed that holiday earlier this week. And what we see here is that it's called in Leviticus, zikaron truah, remembering the sounding, and the implication is the sounding of the shofar, that ram's horn. So once more, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, 
there shall be for you a Shabbaton, a memorial of the sounding. And then we had the phrase, Mikra Kodesh, a holy convocation. That is a holy proclaiming. The word convocation comes from the word for proclaiming something. So we have a holy proclamation to make on that day. And the implication is how we observe it is a message, a testimony to others. Verse 25. All, and we have two words for work. We have one word which usually refers to that which is of a typical work, a labor, a toiling. And then we have a second word, avodah, which can be a service, can be worship. But in this case, it's emphasizing that no type of work whatsoever shall be done. So all forms, and the word form is not there, but it's implied. Every work of labor shall not, you shall not do. What should you do? And you shall bring near or offering up a fire offering to the Lord. Verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the 10th day, and the word that implies here for on, preceding that is the word ach, which means perhaps certainly, even, surely, on the 10th day of the seventh month, this seventh month is the day of atonements. Very significant. We all hear the term Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. But in the text, it doesn't say Yom Kippur, but rather it says Yom HaKippuri, the day of the atonements. And for some other time, we'll talk about why it's in the plural, but consistently it is. So the day of the atonements, it is. And then once more after that, we have the phrase in verse 27, Mikra Kodesh, a holy convocation, a holy proclamation. It shall be for you. And then it says, you shall afflict your souls. And you draw forth, you offer up a fire offering to the Lord. Now, many people have said, what does the, the term afflict your souls have to do with? What is it referring to? Well, most understand this, and traditionally within Judaism, it's always been understood as a fasting, a idiom for fasting. Now, the term for fasting as a fast day is the word tzom, but there's also another word, tanit, and this is a very common word, tanit, for fasting, and it's derived from the same word for afflicting. So there's both a, a l l l rendering of, of fasting with this word that is spoken of as affliction. So once more, look at our text, middle of verse 27. And you shall afflict your souls and draw forth, you shall draw forth, offer up a fire offering to the Lord. Verse 28. This time it simply says one of the words, and all labor, all work, you shall not do on this same day, this very day. 
for a day of atonement. Here it's Yom Kippurim, not Yom HaKippurim. The definite article, the word the, is not there. For a day of atonement, it is to atone unto you before the Lord your God. Verse 29. This begins a series of warnings to, to the children of Israel. For every soul, that means every individual, everyone who has life, for every soul which does not afflict this very day, they shall be cut off. Literally, it's the soul. She shall be cut off from her people, meaning because the word nephesh is a feminine noun, meaning that very person. It says she shall be cut off, but it's, it's that person shall be cut off from his people, but soul is feminine, so her people referring to the soul. Every soul which does any type of labor on this very day, it says, I will perish this soul from the midst of her people. And again, her, because soul is feminine. Verse 31, all labor you shall not do. Hukat olam ledoratechem, a eternal statute throughout your generations. Now the word eternal can mean forever and ever, but it can also be an adjective that describes the kingdom. And I would say it's better understood here for it to be a kingdom statue throughout all of your generations, throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. Verse 32, Shabbat Shabbaton, a Sabbath of a Sabbath day rest, it shall be for you. And this is the third time. And you shall flick your souls from the ninth day in the evening until the evening, unto evening. So from the ninth day in the evening unto evening, meaning until the end of the 10th day. And it says, you shall cease. And the implication is, you shall cease. And then it says, Shabbat Chem, for your Sabbath. So very interesting instructions that God gives to us. Now let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 for the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Let's translate this. We haven't done that for a while. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your very essence. And these things which I command you today upon your heart, you shall teach them diligently to your children, 
and you shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk on the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Let's move now into a time of prayer. Father God, we, we thank you for your festivals. We praise you that we have a special time to worship you, to submit to you, to identify to others that we belong to the God of Israel. We thank you for the work of his son, your only begotten son, Messiah Yeshua. We thank you that we are known by, by your name, that we are the people of your congregation, redeemed by the very blood of your son. Lord, we give you thanks that we can worship you in spirit and truth, that you give us insight and understanding of your word and of your will, that we might follow you, serving you, honoring you in what, what you have commanded us to do. Father, we know as, as your word says that the commandments are not burdensome, but Father, they are spiritual. Lord, we want to be people that demonstrate your truth. We pray for those tonight who are, are struggling, who are hurting, who are, are encountering difficulties in their life and their walk with you. We lift them up to you. We pray comfort. We pray truth upon them. We pray that they might be turning to you in prayer for your, for your assistance, for your help. We pray as well for those who lack tonight. We pray that you might meet that need, that you might raise up your people to give generously, to help those who are hungry and hurting, those who are lost, those who are in despair, those who are, are sick. Lord, we pray for them. We pray for restoration. We pray for healing. We pray for your help to strengthen them and restore them to, to health in every sense of that word health. Lord, we pray for the nation of Israel. We pray for the leaders of this nation and others as well. We pray and lift up to you soldiers and police and judges, those who are in authority. We pray for, for them to be listening and turning to you for how they lead. Lord, we pray for, for changes, whatever so small, we pray for changes that there might be one leader, one mayor, one governor, one congressman, one senator, one parliament leader, member. Lord, we pray that, that they might turn to you and bring about change as much as they can within their sphere of influence. Father, we praise you. We exalt your name. We thank you that you are a God who has manifested his truth to us through your word. Lord, may we cherish it always and apply it properly to our life. For this we pray in the blessed name of Messiah Yeshua. Amen. We are going to begin at this time a new study. A study in two epistles. We're going to do the first one and then immediately thereafter move into the second epistle. And the two epistles I'm speaking of is first and second Timothy. Oftentimes that these two are spoken of as the pastoral epistles. 
Now, many include Titus as well in that, and that's fine. But for our study, we're going to begin tonight, 1 Timothy, going through all of its chapters, and then going to 2 Timothy. And what we find here is that there is much wisdom, much instruction from God that he inspired Paul to write down and to send to young Timothy, that Timothy's leadership might be successful in the congregations that he was, was responsible for, that he was leading, that he was supervising. And this contains wisdom, godly instruction for us even today. Now, let me say that we are going to encounter many things that are being ignored today, being rebelled against. We're not here to do what is acceptable in the eyes of men, how people think, and what they believe should or should not be done. This has no place, no role for us. We are going to share what Paul wrote down, having been inspired by the Spirit of God, we are going to give instructions that are biblically sound. Whether they are enjoyed, believed, accepted, practiced, that is not our, our responsibility. Our responsibility is to give truth, to share proper instruction, and then to encourage others to enforce these things in their local congregations. Not to be passive, not to be tolerant, but rather to be individuals that are indeed a, a force for truth. I don't want to emphasize that. We are called to be individuals that enforce the truth of God. Do not be idle in your local congregation, but be someone that stands up for truth. This is what every disciple, true disciple, is called to do. So with that said, I would invite you to take out your Bible and follow along. Open it up to Paul's first epistle to Timothy and chapter 1. In this study, this evening, we're going to do the first 11 verses. It begins, verse 1, Paul, an apostle. Now, Paul took his call of being an apostle very significantly. He says that he is one that is sent forth, sent forth from Messiah himself in order to carry out the purpose of our Lord and Savior, to be one that is used in a unique role, an apostle, a very important position, being sent forth from Messiah with Messiah's truth and for the purpose of Messiah. So once more, Paul, an apostle of Yeshua, the Messiah, according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Now, the question that we need to ask is, is it interesting that, that, that Paul, in speaking about Messiah and God the Father, how he spoke of, of, of Yeshua here, our Savior? We need to remember that we have been saved and that receiving of salvation should impact everything. Having been saved by the one and only Savior, we should understand that he's 
Lord and therefore submit to his instruction. If we've been saved by him, we're going to want to serve him, obey him. So once more, Paul, an apostle of Yeshua, the Messiah, according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Now, this tells us that it was God's plan. It was his purpose to bring about salvation. And it's only when we are embracing the purposes of God are we submitting to his plan of salvation. He saved us with a purpose. And that salvation experience, it's a command, and we need to be interested in what this command implies. And this is what Paul's going to be revealing in this epistle. Move on to chapter 1 and verse 2. It says, to Timothy, and then we have a word for, for true or genuine, authentic. So Paul is speaking to Timothy. He's writing this epistle primarily to him, who is his genuine child. Now, when it says genuine child, he's talking about in the faith, not a biological child, but truly a, a son of his in the faith. They share that. They are one in that same commitment to the truth of God. Now, it literally says, to Timothy, a true or genuine child in faith. Now, I mention child because this word is in the neuter. It is the word technion, which has to do with a child, and it emphasizes a relationship and also great endearment, great love. So, so Paul chooses a word. Not literally the word son, but because Timothy is male, this child would be a son, but he chooses a word that emphasizes a child within a family relationship. So he's speaking and emphasizing this relationship he has with Timothy, that Timothy is a true disciple, a true son, a true child of, of Paul's. And this brings him into this, this relationship of close endearment. And then he says in the second part of verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace from God. This is what God offers us. He offers us grace that, that causes us to be recipients of the mercy of God. And it's through grace and mercy that we can have peace with God. But all of this came from God, our Father, and Yeshua, the Messiah. And it says at the end, our Lord. Now, twice we've seen something. Twice we see that Messiah in this passage is spoken of as Lord. And that word has serious implications. The fact that he's just not the Messiah, but he's also our Lord. He's the Lord over all. Therefore, to enter into this relationship with him, we become his servant. It is not too strong to say the word slave, that we are called to be absolutely in sub submissiveness, to subject ourselves to his lordship in our life. So this is something that's emphasized as Paul opens up this 
epistle. And I think it's emphasized for what Paul is going to emphasize primarily in this next section. He says in verse 3, just as I have, and this is a word to implore, to urge. It's a word of strong, strong encouragement. So Paul is choosing his words carefully, being inspired, obviously, by the Holy Spirit, where he says, just as I urged, I, I encourage you to remain in Ephesus. And he says, while going into Macedonia, meaning his going into Macedonia. Now, Paul instructed, urged Timothy to stay there in Ephesus in order to set things in order as he carried on throughout Macedonia. He says, in order that, and the implication here is that you instruct, and it's an instruction of warning, that you warn them, that you instruct them, and then it speaks that, that, that anyone who is doing something, and that is teaching other, and the implication is other doctrines. So Paul says, first and foremost, Timothy, just as I urged you, employed you to remain in Ephesus, why I continued on, in order that something would be carried out. And that would be that there would be a harsh and, and severe warning to those certain ones, whoever they were, who were teaching doctrines that were contrary to the truth of Scripture, the revelation that God gave the apostles, biblical truth. So this is at the foundation. And I believe that this is very timely because we know as we approach the last days, that there's going to be apostasy. There's going to be wrong doctrines being taught within the local congregations, within those of faith. And this is going to cause those who were not true believers to fall away. But it's also going to bring, bring disunity. It is going to bring confusion. It is going to bring conflict. And Paul is saying, don't, don't move away from this conflict, but war against it. He urges them to put things in order against anyone who are teaching, and it simply says teaching other, and the implication is other doctrines, other theologies. And then he says, look now to verse 4, but do not give heed, do not pay attention to is what it literally is meaning. Don't give heed to myths and to endless genealogies. Now, these myths would be understood as well as legends. What he's saying is this, and this is so relevant. There are movements like in, in the New Apostolic Reformation, those that, that are part of movements that emphasize the, the, the spiritual uh, expressions that individuals are having. So they emphasize what this one is experiencing, what this one is saying, rather than the Word of God. 
And the problem is that oftentimes these so-called testimonies are, are false. A good example of one who gives an open forum to this is a program called It's Supernatural. And it's all these individuals that were transported to, to heaven that uncovered uh, a portal that leads to the supernatural and such. And these individuals that appear there, almost without exception, I say almost, I don't know of any exception, but I'll, I'll, I'll be careful. Almost without exception, these individuals are, are false they are sharing things that are not biblically sound. They're making up things for attention to sensationalize. And what Paul is saying here is that the emphasis should be on doctrine and not experience. And this is the problem today, that the emphasis is on experience rather than upon doctrines. Now, he talks about these myths. This would be legendary material. These, these testimonies of, of the supernatural that are not rooted in scriptural truth. And endless genealogies. Well, these are not the genealogies of scripture. The genealogies in the scriptures are fine. They should be studied. They come with, with information that we need to understand. But he's talking about other genealogies outside the Bible that have a primary responsibility to exalt someone to to give them a pedigree to give them a connection and oftentimes genealogies were used for for different purposes that that oftentimes we're not familiar with at all today how these genealogies were being used also in rabbinical literature this is what is oftentimes being referred to here by myths so it says Stay away from, don't give heed to these legends, these myths, these in, uh, endless genealogies. Which, what do they do? It says, which brings up, that's what they do. They surface, they cause to be brought up. And the word here is, is seeking things. And it's literally a word that relates to disputes. They seek more conversation. They bring about doubts. They bring about those things which are uncertain. And if they're uncertain, people can just talk about them and talk about them and talk about them. Rather, they bring up such discussions which are endless and which have no true answers to them. Rather than, it says, that which is edifying, that which brings about a proper administration of God in the lives of people. And some Bibles will translate this word as edification, as stewardship, administration. It's simply saying, when we move away from the truth of God, the doctrines of the Bible, what happens is this. It brings about a disunity. It brings about confusion. It brings about a forum for those individuals just to speak what's on their minds. And oftentimes their minds are not rooted in Scripture rather than bringing about an experience where the administration, the stewardship, the edification of God is being, being emphasized and experienced by the, the family of God. It says, once more, do not give heed to these myths and endless genealogy, which bring up, up 
endless disputes. Rather, this is what's right. Rather, we should have the administration of God in the faith. And understand that the word faith is related to truth. So we want the truth. That's what we want to emphasize because the truth, the true faith is edifying. It brings about in a proper administration of God, godliness and God's activity among his congregation. Verse five. Now, what is the objective? We have a word here, telos. Telos can be translated end. But this is a great example where most Bibles do not translate this as the end, but rather they use the word purpose. Now, there's a verse of scripture that says the end of the law, but it's really the purpose, the objective, the goal of the law, not an end as in determination. It's the same word that's used here where it says, but the purpose of the instruction. This is a righteous proclamation. The purpose of the instruction, godly instruction, is love. Now, it's significant because biblically, the word love relates to the commandments of God. Messiah taught, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We know that the commandments, the first two of importance, not order, but importance that Messiah gave, was to love the Lord your God, as we said in the Shema, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your very essence. And then also, the second one is like it, love your neighbor. So love is the expression of Torah truth in our life when we are submitting to the righteousness of God. And when we are walking in righteousness, we're going to be expressing love. So here he says, look again at, at verse 5. But the end of the proclamation, the instruction, or the commandment, we could say, is love. Love from a, a clean heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. And that word at the end, sincere faith, that word sincere is so significant. That we do things out of a sincerity. Because we truly believe this is right. This is proper. It is the correct thing to do, and we want to do what is right because it's right. Not because of what we're going to receive. Not because of how God's going to respond to us personally in some way that we want. We do it and trust that God will move in an edifying way to build up others as well. We want that godly administration that's what, what Paul is instructing Timothy here. So those who have a, a clean heart, those who have a good conscience, and those that have a sincere faith. Verse 6. There were certain ones, however, which certain ones, they did something. It says missing the mark. Not getting to that objective, not coming to that word telos, the goal, the purpose. They missed that. And that's sad. And again, Paul is instructing Timothy, you need to set things in order. Don't let these endless discussions on doctrines that are not rooted in Scripture, these endless genealogies, these fables, these myths, these legends, 
that, that, that people have written down that's become part of the oral tradition, rabbinical folklore. Don't let these things, or now the charismatic folklore. It's not against that I'm against those that, 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 that are from the charismatic community, but I'm against when we see frequently within that community an emphasis on experience rather than on truth. So he says, there are these certain ones which have missed the mark and they have turned from, they have turned out of where they should be. So they've missed the mark, they've turned away and they've turned into, notice what it says, profitless speech. Now this is speech without the emphasis on the purpose of God. It speaks about idle speech, speech that does not have a prophet from God's perspective. God's not pleased with this type of speech. So they've turned away, they've missed the mark, meaning they're not obeying what God would have them to do. They've missed out on that objective, that goal. How did they miss out? Because they've turned from this into this, this idle, unprofitable speech. Verse 7. Wanting to be teachers of the law. Now, they're wanting to have authority. That's what teachers of the law really speak to. Those who want to rule over. Now, in the book of Revelation, there's a group of people, Neolatians, or Nicolatians, as it's, it's properly uh, pronounced. These words, these two words come from the word nikeo, which is victory or conquering, and the word leo, which is people. So the Nicolaitans, these were individuals that wanted to dominate, conquer people. And this is what it's speaking about here, with those who want to be teachers of the law, but not understanding what they are, are saying, nor are they, are they proper in what they're asserting to be of, of no question, no doubt. So they boldly assert things. They certify things as truth when they don't know what they're talking about. And we see all the time individuals speaking about something, and you can tell that they're answering the question, they're dealing with this issue from the top of their head, rather than having spent hours in study, hours in prayer, pondering the scripture, seeking God's guidance, seeking that, that anointing of the Holy Spirit in teaching us, revealing to us his truth. They're not doing that. They want to be teachers of the law, but not understanding what they say and not concerning the things that they assert so boldly. Verse 8. But we know, and notice what he says here, but we know, who's that? True believers who are interested in the truth of God and the edification of God being upon ourselves and others within the house of God. He says, but we know that good is the law. If a certain one, he has it lawfully, that is, he's wanting to use it lawfully. He has that, that purpose of a godly outcome. 
So notice what he says. But we know that good is the law. If a certain one has a lawful purpose to him, he wants to use it lawfully. And what is that? To express the love of God. Do you realize that the law of God, the Torah of God, is given to us so that we can express the love of God that we've received to him, back to him, and to others? That's the framework. That's the objective of the law. That's why when Messiah was challenged, what is the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The law teaches us how to document God's love in us to others and to back to God himself. He says in verse 9, Knowing this, that for a righteous one, the law is not laid. Now, some will say made or given. It's a word to lay down. It wasn't extended. It wasn't set forth. That's what he's talking about here. So for a righteous one, the law was not set forth, but rather for the lawless one, the one who's against that message of righteousness. For it's for the lawless ones and the ones who are insubordinate, meaning they are rebellious in nature. They do not want to submit. So the law is for the lawless ones who are insubordinate, the ungodly ones, sinners, those who are unholy and profane, murders of fathers and murders of mothers and those who slay individuals, men slayers. Now, notice here, at the end, we have three different words that relate to murder, taking a life. And what it tells us is this, when I am about myself, that I want to use religious things, the law of God, for example, to exalt self. I'm wanting authority. I'm wanting to dominate others. When we have that, that mindset, we are putting ourselves in a position where we are just one step away from murder. Now, we know what Messiah taught. If you have malice in your heart for someone, you hate that person, spiritually, you are a murderer. And it's a warning that that type of, of behavior, it meets a spiritual condition of murder, but the emphasis is that it puts you in a condition where you might take a life. So many people who have committed, unfortunately, murder, after the fact, they're shocked by their behavior. They couldn't believe that they've done that. Why? Because they followed a, a moving, moving away from loving, being concerned about someone else, wanting to be a blessing to them. They've moved away from that. They may have never even been there. And now they're thinking about themselves. And in order to get what they want, they know they have to dominate others. They want authority over them. They want to manipulate them for their purposes. And when someone doesn't submit to that, they get angry. They have malice and 
it's not careful. That malice, those feelings will lead to actions of violence that can end up with someone being dead. This slaying of the parents is probably a reference to what we see in the book of Deuteronomy and that, that law that speaks about Ben Sorer, a, a un, unrepentant and absolutely rebellious young man who is a threat to his family and to society. So it speaks about those type of individuals. Now look at verse 10. The law was given for those people to manifest their sinfulness to them, that they're not right, that there's a problem, that they need healing, that they need saving. And likewise in verse 10, to the sexually immoral. And then we have a word, and a few months ago, I gave a special message on homosexuality. A lot of, of response to that, especially in emails. And, and people, they, they go by what they, they read, they don't look deep. The word here, homosexual, people say, oh, that's not the word homosexual. That word's not in the Bible. Well, we have two words here. We have the word for a man, a male, not a female, but a male. And then that word, the second part of this word, has to do with a word that has to do with, with laying down, with, with, with inhabiting a bed. So it speaks about, it's an idiom that speaks about a male having a male bed partner, laying down with another male. That's what it's speaking about here. And we would call that simply a homosexual. So it links together sexual immorality with that concept of homosexuality. So there's other forms of such, uh, such decadent behavior, but homosexuality is one of them. And people can say, I don't believe the Bible. I don't want to follow that. That is their prerogative. But one cannot say, if they do a study of, of these words, and look at them closely, they cannot say that this word does not relate to a homosexual. It's in the plural homosexuality. And then it speaks about someone who, who takes possession of someone. I believe most Bibles will talk about this as, as a kidnapper. It's in the plural. Liars, those who would perjure themselves, speak anything that they want and not speaking or sensitive to the truth. And it says, and those that are against sound teaching. That they set themselves, any other type of person that sets themselves against sound teaching. Now, I think it's very significant that here Paul is beginning to write to Timothy. This epistle that tells him, this is vital for you to have a successful congregation, that there be successful congregation, local assemblies that you're over, that you are presiding over, watching over, supervising. And what is he saying here? He's saying how we need to be so careful about falsehood, doctrines that are not based upon the word of God coming into the family of God, the house of God, that local assembly. And today, in my experience, not just in one location or a few, but throughout the world, we see that Satan is being very successful 
in getting a lot of dangerous doctrine, falsehood, that which is against the truth of Scripture, to be heard, to be embraced, to be practiced, to be taught in many, many, many congregations. And he says at the end, and if there's anyone who is against, who has anything other than sound doctrine, this is who? The Torah. And the word Torah can be instruction. The law is instruction, is for. And Paul concludes our section, look now at verse 11. According to the gospel of glory. Now, in, in one place, I was looking and preparing this. The, the author, in commenting about this passage, says, how unique, unexpected it is for Paul now, after saying what he said, to talk about the gospel of glory. And the message is this. All of these things attack the gospel of God. Now, here's what a lot of people want to do. And this is, when someone says this, this is someone who is going to be used by the enemy. Now, I realize that Paul says, I came to you desiring to know nothing but, but Messiah crucified dead. But he wanted to emphasize that. This was the thing that he wanted to do, get people to be redeemed, understand who Messiah is, what Messiah did, but obviously, when you look at what Paul wrote, he wrote greatly about discipleship, about doctrine, as we're going to encounter in this first epistle of Timothy. So it's just not, I'm only going to teach the gospel and anything else I'm not going to be concerned about. This is where, when a congregation says, we're only going to focus in on the gospel. That's what our main concern with. And if people are, are believers of the gospel, they're, they're, they're saying, yes, this is a good thing, the gospel's good, then we're going to embrace them and whatever else they say, we may not agree with that and what, but that's okay. Very dangerous. That is an attack against the gospel of glory. You're not going to have glory being manifested when you take that approach. This is what Paul is revealing here. Look at our last verse, verse 11. According to the gospel of glory of the blessed of God, the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Now the word entrusted is that same word for faith, that I have been made to be faithful to this gospel of glory. And the last thing I want to say is why the gospel of glory because when the gospel is embraced it positions that person to become an instrument by his behavior not just receiving the gospel but when that person matures in the gospel meaning this that he gets saved he becomes regenerated that's a process when he becomes that new creation and the process is not becoming that new creation but demonstrating that, that fact that he's the new creation. A very important distinction. One gets saved, the spirit enters in, that person becomes a new creation. That happens instantaneously. But the process of living out, of demonstrating that regeneration, that you are a new creation, that's a process for you to manifest it, grow and mature, and be instruments of God's glory. And what Paul is saying is this, I have been entrusted, I am faithful to, 
the purpose of seeing God's glory manifested in individuals. But when we are about ourselves, when we focus in on myths and legends, when we dispute things that are not of a biblical realm, when we put that as the emphasis, you're going to see what Paul spoke about later on. And these are all these type of behaviors that are against the law of God. That's what the law is for, bringing this into submissiveness, bringing about a change in order that the glory of God could be manifested. Well, let me close with this. This epistle that we've just began to see, it is going to challenge us. We're going to see many things that are being violated today in, in most local congregations, ignored, unaware of, not seen as important. And when we say, oh, these things are important, I'm not going to deal with them, I'm not going to enforce them, I'm not going to mandate that, that these things be, be followed. What we're doing is inviting demonic influence into the house of God. And that demonic influence is going to manifest itself with just what we saw, sexual immorality, that which is unholy, that which is profane, that which is of the character of one who perjures himself, that does not speak truth and does not, not commit himself to the truth. Those who miss the mark and turn aside. So if we're not following the teachings that we're going to be encountering in this study over the next few months, you're going to see that the enemy will do a very good job of turning the local congregation into that which is abominable before God. Well, I'll stop at that point. Shalom from Israel.